0: Well, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12. Excuse me. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 24 and 25 as we finish out uh, this particular chapter. The theme of this uh, passage is going to be the world versus the word. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. And since again I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of His Holy Word. Verse 24. But the Word of the Lord, or literally the Word of God, continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, Let's uh, put this uh, passage in its context. Remember, uh, Acts chapter 12 uh, opened with this great persecution against the church. King Herod had put the bullseye of his vicious attacks on the heads of the apostles. James has been beheaded. Peter almost was beheaded till God intervened through the prayers of God's people and sent an angel and rescued him miraculously out of jail. The church in Jerusalem, probably at that time, As they did earlier when Stephen was stoned, they kind of went underground or they began to scatter. And I would suspect with the death of James and the near death of Peter that the church probably began to go underground to some degree when the hostility arose. Uh, They were no doubt scared and the eyes of the religious Gestapo of the chief priests was no doubt on them looking for other targets to carry out their wrath upon. There were no no doubt other arrests that were probably uh, taking place that Scripture does not record. But it's a very difficult time for the church in Jerusalem. It's a very difficult time for believers. And again, probably... Many of them began to leave Jerusalem. We know that eventually all the apostles will leave Jerusalem and go out and do ministry in other areas. But I think what we learn from the context is that the church will always have opposition in the world. And Jesus spoke plainly about this in John chapter 16 verse 33 when he said to his disciples, In the world you will have tribulation. We will be tested, we will be tried, and sometimes the fire will be intense. But we're told that though we will have to endure tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and even martyrdom at times by the end of the sword, yet Paul reminds us in Romans 8.37 that in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And He's also promised that we will overcome the world also. Remember what John will write later in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, When he says that whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it is our God-given faith. Our faith that is sustained and upheld by God's daily supply of grace. That will enable us to overcome the world. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if the divine overcomer dwells within us, then it guarantees that we too will overcome the world by His grace and mercy. It is this ultimate victory that I think is reflected in our verses this morning, particularly verse 24. That though the world unleashes its hellish wrath against the church, it cannot and it will not extinguish the light of, of God's Word. And that's why we read in verse 24 that in the midst of all this persecution and in the judgment on Herod, that the Word of the Lord or the Word of God continued to grow and to be multiplied. That all the persecution that was going on could not bottle up and incarcerate the Word of God. That there is a power, there's a purpose. In the the Word of God that the world cannot suppress and cannot defeat. And if it does it for long, it's only for a short period of time. So let's begin to look at verse 24 again in the light of the context. Because we know that there will be perpetual opposition as we have seen earlier in Acts chapter 12 with Herod. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned. And God was holding court with the serpent and with Adam and Eve. And He began to pronounce His curses upon the three of them. You remember what He said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. The woman's seed. Well, how do we interpret that? Of course, he goes on and talks about the seed of the woman will crush the the head of the serpent. So ultimately, Christ wins the victory. But he says that I will put enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And the serpent's seed, since Satan has no uh, children like we think of it, his seed... It's what John later calls the unbelieving world. They are the children of the devil in First John chapter uh, two, three. First John chapter three. They are the children of the devil, and then the the woman seed ultimately would be the children of faith, the fil- the children who who follow God. So what we find all the way back in Genesis chapter three, verse thirteen, is a prophetic word. That God's people, the woman's seed, will always have opposition and enmity with Satan's seed. That is, there will be an enmity between the world, the unbelievers, and Christ's people, the church. And then you come all the way. you, You read through the Bible and you see that opposition throughout every book of the Bible. You come all the way to the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12. We read of the great red dragon who is called the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, that when he failed to devour the baby boy that the woman gave birth to, and then he later failed to defeat the woman and put her to death, it says that he became enraged and went off to make war with the rest of the woman's children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, it speaks of this enmity and this satanic war of Satan against God's people, those who hold the testimony of Jesus. So this is a battle that goes on. We should not be surprised about it. Uh, we should not be uh, alarmed about it. This has always been the way it has worked out in history. It's working its way out today within the world and, uh, and, and with greater intensity even within America. But there is this opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's in this context though that we read verse 24. That the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The word of God. And notice how Luke puts this. He doesn't say that uh, the church began to multiply, which was true. He didn't say the disciples began to grow and flourish, which was certainly true. But the way he phrased it was, it's the word of God that not only grew, but multiplied. It's the Word of God. And His focus is upon the abiding, powerful nature of Scripture. And this is because fundamental to the growth of the church and fundamental to the growth of the individual believer is the growth of the Word of God in our lives. And that's why the Spirit of God moved Luke To put the spotlight on the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's growing. It's the Word of God that's multiplying. Which also means the church was growing and individual believers were growing into maturity because the Word was growing and the Word was being multiplied. And here we see the the ultimate fundamental victory of God's Word over the world. And John Stott put it this way. He said, this chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing over the church. But this chapter closes with Herod dead, Peter set free, and the word of God triumphing in the world. This is very similar to the imagery that we see of Israel and Egypt when God prospered the Jews or Israel when they were enslaved and afflicted by the Egyptians. We read in Exodus 1 that the more the Egyptians afflicted them, the more they multiplied and spread out. And this is a principle that will hold true in the church as well. The more the world persecutes the church, the more by the grace of God the word will grow and the church will multiply. So that the church is destined for times of persecution and affliction. But such trials will never frustrate the word of God in the life of the church. So we're promised tribulation in the world. Just as they experienced it in Acts 12. But Christ has overcome the world. And he's promised that I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or death will not prevail against her. So that persecution, no matter how vicious, will not defeat God's Word or God's Kingdom. And that's why Martin Luther led us to sing in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, these words, that the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His Kingdom is forever. So they can kill the body, they can persecute us to the death, But God's word will grow and God's people will grow because of the very purpose of persecution and actually blessing the growth of the church. On a practical level, the growth in this context was no doubt uh, encouraged by God providentially overthrowing Herod and judging him and, and killing him taking his life. That the growth of God's word here and the growth of God's grace follows immediately on God's judgment upon King Herod. And there's, there's irony here, isn't there? Because whereas Herod's voice was acclaimed as the voice of a God, that voice soon perished and died. But the true word of God continued to live and grow and flourish. And that's part of the contrast, I think, that the Spirit of God would have us to see. That all the the proud, arrogant words of the world to condemn us and to mock us, their voices are only temporary. Their voices only last for a short time. But the Word of God abides forever. And so where their voice will be silenced, the Word of God will go forth in greater power and authority, and volume. Now it's true in America, we don't know much of this level of persecution yet. It's growing sadly within our country, but I think this is part of the benefit for us to stay in contact with our brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted, even to the death. That's why we enjoy getting the magazine of the voice of the martyrs. This very last issue, if you happen to be on their mailing list, the, uh, the heading on the cover said this. And it fits beautifully with our, with our text this morning. It says, Gospel Advance in the Hindu Heartland. And that's exactly what's going on here in Acts. It's Gospel Advance in the False Jewish Religion Heartland. Of Jerusalem that the gospel is still advancing and then when you open up the very first page it says this organized public beatings of pastors and sexual assaults of their wives and young daughters poisoning of Christians water supplies destruction of churches assassinations of church leaders and burning of Bibles this is how the Hindus in India are treating believers, and this is this growing hostility in India, in the northern part, which is basically the the Hindu uh, uh, stronghold, is the result of the last twenty years, where the Gospels had great headway within within India, and many Hindus have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Our My good friend Bose in India, many of the converts in his church have come from the Hindu background. And of course, the seminary that I've had the privilege of going to is training young men to go out and preach the gospel to the Hindus throughout India and Myanmar. But it was this growth of the gospel that, that brought this greater hostility and persecution even today upon the church in India. But that's just spurring more and more growth within that country. It's the very same thing that we're seeing and reading about here in Acts 12. You see, God's enemies may prevail for a season, sometimes for a long season, but they will fail in the end and their doom is sure. And again, Martin Luther, from his hymn, taught us to sing, And though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. And that word, of course, is Jesus Christ and His gospel. So what we're seeing in the book of Acts way back then, and seeing in India and China and, and uh, uh, Iran and other places around the world where there's great persecution against the church, is that the Word of God continues to grow and multiply. So whatever enemies come up against us, like King Herod, ultimately they are doomed. I remember reading about uh, Voltaire, the French agnostic philosopher back in the 18th century who tried to destroy the church by his own ridicule and mockery. And he predicted at one point in his life that within 50 years, people will have forgotten even who Jesus Christ was. So if you advance 50 years into the future, on that particular date and that year, the British Museum purchased a Bible manuscript from Russia for half a million dollars which was a ton of money back in in that day, back in the 1700s. And on that same year, in that same year, one of Voltaire's books sold for 8 cents in the local bookstore. And in that same year, the Geneva Bible Society was running off thousands of Bibles on presses that had been set up in Voltaire's former home in Geneva. So he wasn't much of a prophet. But it reminds me of Psalm 2, that he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at his enemies. And it was true back then. And it's true today as well. Well, then we read in verse 25 about Barnabas and Saul. You have to go up to the end of chapter 11 to get the context for this. Uh, Barnabas and Saul are up in Antioch. A prophet from Jerusalem has gone up to Antioch and prophesied that there's going to be a worldwide famine. So the church in Antioch, where they're first called Christians, gather up a bunch of money, and they send Barnabas and Saul from Antioch to deliver the money to the Christians still in Jerusalem that are suffering from the poverty of all the famine that was coming on. And on their return trip, we're told in verse 25, That after they fulfill their mission, they take along with them John, who is also called Mark. Now, we first have mentioned, uh, Luke has mentioned John Mark, as we will refer to him, uh, back in chapter 12, verse 12. And what we learn from there is that his mother was the one who hosted the prayer group when Peter was in prison. So John Mark comes from a very godly home. His mother obviously was a solid, committed believer who opened up her home for the saints to gather and pray for Peter that God might rescue him out of prison. We also learn from the Apostle Paul that John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. We find that in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10. So they're actually related to one another, John Mark and Barnabas. And John Mark is also traditionally understood to be the author of the Gospel of Mark because he will later on develop a close friendship with Peter and Peter will communicate a lot of this information and basically kind of be ascribed to Peter in recording the Gospel of Mark. This is that John Mark according to tradition. John Mark will also, who goes back up to Antioch with Barnabas and Saul in verse 25, will eventually join them on their first missionary journey. But there he runs into problems. For reasons that are not totally clear, he abandons the missionary journey and goes back home. And we'll speculate on that when we get there. But when, they, when, when Paul and Barnabas eventually come back to Antioch after the first missionary journey, and they start off on the second one, Barnabas wants to take his cousin with them again, But Paul says no because he abandoned the work on the first missionary journey. So that creates some kind of a division. Paul and Barnabas sadly separate in the providence of God. They go their own ways. They have their own ministries. So there's some kind of a strife between Paul and John Mark. But then later on in uh, Paul's very last letter that he writes, he has reconciled with John Mark. He asked for John Mark to come and says he is useful for me in ministry. So you have, a great, you have a great story in the life of John Mark that we'll trace as we work through the rest of the book of Acts. He was a young man, <clears throat> probably, that uh, had his ups and downs spiritually. And he was not a perfect man, but God used him to write an inspired and perfect gospel So just God deals with us. He uses us even though sometimes we don't always stand up for Christ and are as bold for Christ as we should. Sometimes we abandon the work. Doesn't mean that God rejects us forever. He can get us back on track as He does with this young man. So anyway, we'll pick him up more later on. I do want to kind of look at... uh, couple of lessons I think that we can glean from verse 24. And the first one again is just uh, the truth that the, the church triumphs in the end. And I think this is kind of the overarching uh, lesson that we see in this particular passage. In light of all the persecution that was going on in the first part of the chapter, in light of James' death and Peter being incarcerated and then having to to, to be rescued, and then eventually goes off some other place after he visits the home where the prayer meeting was, that we see that this really is a, a, a microcosm of a much greater truth that the church always triumphs in the end. doesn't mean we triumph in the sense of worldly standards of what that means. doesn't mean that we become wealthy and healthy like the prosperity gospel. But ultimately, the church triumphs in faith and grace by the by the mercy of God. We, we know this because we've read the end of the book, not only the end of the book of Acts, but also the end of the book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We come to the very last uh, chapter, and we read that uh, regardless of how many martyrs the world kills, no matter how the world mistreats God's people, that there is a day of judgment yet to come, When all will be vindicated, all the saints will be vindicated in glory. We have our ultimate victory then. Maybe not in this life in terms of worldly standards, but we triumph in the end through Jesus Christ who has triumphed over sin and death, hell and Satan. In Revelation 19, Christ on that day will come riding on a white horse. His eyes will be a flame of fire and on His head will be many crowns. He'll be clothed with a robe dripped, dipped in blood. And His name is called the Word of God. And from His mouth will come a sharp sword so that with it He will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So those who refuse to repent and become followers of the Lamb of God will be trampled by the feet of the Lamb of God on that particular great white throne day of judgment. He will tread them like someone treads the wine press. And the, the judgment will be severe. And on that day, all who persecuted the church, all who spoke against the church will have to give an account from Him who is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. So ultimately, we find in verse 24 that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied because that's the nature of the church. We can be afflicted. We can be persecuted. We can be put to death. But the word of God will continue to grow. It will continue to expand. And the world cannot stop that. When it comes to the world against the Word, the Word will triumph over the world because it's sustained by the very power of God. And then on a more practical level, the way you and I live on a day-to-day basis, I think this passage encourages us that every believer will persevere through the suffering that they may have to endure in this life. You see, we are also promised that the Christian life is going to be full of trials and afflictions, but we can overcome them by the grace of God and the Word of God. Suffering is always going to be a part of your Christian life. It's a part of the work of sanctification that God has ordained. But the Spirit of God uses our suffering and our trials to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. You cannot escape it. And I think since we all have that in our life, in one way or another, afflictions, trials, temptations, whatever it is, we've got to understand and look at it from God's perspective, not just from our own human flawed perspective. If I look at my trials and my uh, troubles from my perspective, it's easy to get discouraged. But if I understand that God is a sovereign God, who has ordained all things to accomplish His good purpose in my life, Then I can embrace them. And though it may be very painful and difficult, I can trust that ultimately God is going to work good out of it. And He will give me the grace to overcome it. And that is our confidence in Him. Job tells us that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So you are born for trouble. That's what Job is basically saying was true of his life and that's true of your life and my life as well. And that's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, therefore don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised about it. It comes upon you for your testing and don't think it's some strange thing happening to you. No, God has sent that. God is sovereign over that. And find comfort in that. Believers will persevere through their God-ordained suffering for suffering and afflictions and trials are not designed to undermine our spiritual growth, but to stimulate it. And this is where Scripture uh, encourages us, I think, most of all. Your trials, whatever you're going through today, and we're not being put to death like James was, we're not being thrown in jail like Peter was, But whatever trials you're going through today have a purpose and a part in God's sovereign plan and purpose for your life. It's there to stimulate spiritual growth, not to undermine it. It's the same thing with the gardeners when they prune their trees or they prune their tomato plants, pinch off all those sucker branches that are growing up. It's the same principle. That by pruning, you remove material to stimulate the fruitfulness of the plant. And God sends trials and He sends troubles to prune material out of your life. It may be part of your health, it may be part of your wealth. It may be part of any other area of your life that we have a tendency to cling to and find too much joy in. And what the Lord is trying to do is to teach us to find our joy in Him. That He will prune away this stuff out of our life to stimulate the growth of more fruitfulness. Now Jesus understood this principle well. Remember in John chapter 15, verse 8, He said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Well, how do we bear much fruit that glorifies the father? That's what he wants in our life is to bear much fruit. So so how does that happen, Lord? Well, then he has told us earlier in John chapter 15, verse two, that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. So that's what God is doing in your life. Through your trials, through your troubles, through the challenges that you face. He may be pruning your life so that you will bear more fruit. Because that's what glorifies Him, is that we bear more fruit. It's also that pruning, it's also those trials and sufferings that we have read about in Acts 12 where the church is persecuted. That God uses that to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 that we must suffer with Him. That we might be glorified with Him. Because this is how we're conformed to His image. Christ carried the cross before He wore the crown. And as we're conformed to His image, therefore we must carry our cross before we wear the crown of glory. I think, again, we see that being played out here. The church is bearing their cross. James is dying. Peter is incarcerated. I mean, just read the rest of the book of Acts and Paul is going to be like a, a beating pole from the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to be so afflicted throughout his ministry. But that's just the nature of it. We, in this life, we often have to carry our cross before we wear the crown of glory. And that's why the Word of God is so instrumental in this whole process. That's why verse 24, after all the persecution going on in chapter 12, that the Word of God continued to grow and to be multiplied. Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our sanctification. It's the Word of God that's so important in our walk with Him. So that if we're neglecting Scripture... We're not going to see the growth and the fruitfulness that we should see. And I think that's why the Spirit of God is telling us, look, even in this context, even in the midst of persecution, look at how the Word of God is growing. And that's telling us, man, the Word of God is is so vital to my own personal growth and sanctification. So what's looked at on on a macro level here with the church at large applies to me on a microscope level that this is important in my own personal sanctification as well. Because it's the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to renew my mind, that transform my life. And that without the Word, the world will have much greater influence on the way we think and the way we act and the way we talk. So I want to really kind of close out by just walking through some things that you well know. But just the importance of Scripture. Scripture. And why is it that the Word of God is growing and multiplying and why it needs to be doing that in my life as well? And part of that is just because of the nature and the character of Holy Scripture. So just by way of review, again, the centrality of Scripture That when the Word is growing and multiplying, so will the church grow and multiply, and so will you individually grow and multiply in maturity and grace if the Word of God is growing and multiplying. There's a practical side to this that I hope will encourage all of us in our own discipline to commit to spending time in the Word of God because that is the key to growing and and multiplying and uh, becoming more like Christ. So under this heading of the centrality of Scripture, let me just remind you of of why it's so important. The Word of God is so important. And the first is that the Word of God is totally divine and profitable, right? We all know this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, do we really believe that? The Word of God is inspired. It is God-breathed. And it is profitable. You know, a lot of things that we do are not that profitable for us. But in the spiritual realm, the Word of God is profitable. It is God's breathed Word. And it's profitable for teaching, to help us to understand sound truth, for reproof, to convict me of my sin, and one of the one of the the uh, effects of not being regularly in the Word of God is we become more hardened to our sin, more unable to recognize it, and to deal with it. We need the light of the Word of God shining because part of the function of the law of God is to reveal sin. That's why we need to be in the Word regularly. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness to make us more like Christ so that we might be adequate and equipped for every good work. Because the Word of God is inspired by God and profitable, it will always give you a healthy return on your investment of time when the Spirit of God is at work. It's always profitable. It will always give you a good return on your investment of your time spent in the Word. There's always a bull market when you read the Word of God and the Spirit of God is is opening your eyes to see truth. It's always a bull market when you come to the Word of God with the Spirit of God. You never will waste your time when you spend time reading Scripture because it's profitable. God says it's profitable. So don't neglect it. Spend time in the Word of God. Because it's inspired and because it is always profitable. Secondly, the Word of God is so important to the growth of the church in Acts 12 and for our spiritual individual growth because the Word of God is eternal. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, All flesh is like grass, of all of its glory like the flower of grass, The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. You know, every other book fades with time. Uh, It may reach the the top ten list on the New York bestsellers list, but give it a week, give it a month, give it a year, and it's way down on the list. But the Word of God is eternal. It's the only book you have in your house that is eternal. Every other book is temporal. But the Word of God is here today and it's going to be here throughout all of eternity. And if we want to build our our lives on a foundation, we need an eternal foundation, a solid foundation. And that is Holy Scripture. And as the church was proclaiming the Word of God, the Word was, was victorious and triumphing and more people were being saved and the church was growing. And all of that is because the Word was growing. And the Word was multiplying. So if you want that growth in your own personal walk with Christ, then the Word of God needs to grow and multiply. Because that produced the growth in the church. So the Word of God is foundational and fundamental. Its importance is also seen in the fact that the Word of God is always successful. Remember, Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. It will not fail. And it's interesting, He says not even one little stroke of one letter will fail. And in the Hebrew and in the Greek, you know, like like in our alphabet, you have like uh, the letter E let's say a capital E, remove the top little bar, that's like one stroke of one letter of the law will not even fail. Not even a, a part of one letter of God's Word is going to fail. Well, how many how many things do you read can you say that about? But the Word of God is eternal. It's incredibly... Uh, Rich for us. It is always successful. It will never fail. That's why Isaiah 55 will say that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. And do not return there without watering the earth says the Lord. And making it bare and sprout. And furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word God says be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. So the Word of God does not fail. And part of the reason that we see the success of of the Word of God in verse 24 is because of the power of the Word of God. It's inspired by God, it's eternal, it's successful, it always accomplishes God's purpose in the hearts of the people who hear it. It will never fail. The Word of God is also powerful and penetrating. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit above joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the Word of God, this is what's so encouraging about reading the Scriptures. It can penetrate the hardest heart. I can smother over my sin And ignore it and deny it. But the Spirit of God can take the Word of God and just hammer down and slice down through there and expose that to my heart so I repent of it. That's the power of the Word of God. It can penetrate all the way down to the innermost being and and either impart grace into an area of weakness or expose a stronghold of Satan or sin that has uh, found influence within our hearts, and our lives. So the Word of God is powerful and penetrating. And that's why we need to be in the Word regularly. Because I need that for my life. Because my flesh will always try to drag me down spiritually or cover over my sin, so I deny it. I need the Word of God to continue to expose and encourage me and impart more grace to my soul. And again, that's the ministry of God through the Word of God. And then we find that the Word of God is cannot be shackled by man. Paul will actually make note of this when he's in prison for the second time in Rome, writing his last letter to Timothy right before he's going to be put to death. And he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, that for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal... But the Word of God is not imprisoned. And what he's saying is that you can imprison the messenger, but you can never imprison the message. That even though Paul was in prison in Rome, through his ministry, the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole Roman Guard heard the gospel. So even though he was in prison, the Word of God was not imprisoned. And was still being preached and shared. And many heard the gospel. So that you cannot... And we all face enemies today. We don't have a Herod throwing us in jail. Or a Herod putting us to death in America. Our brothers and sisters in other places around the world do. We don't in America. But we still have our enemies. The world, the flesh, Satan. But the word of God is going to be the key to your victory over your enemies. That's why I love Revelation 12, again, verse 10 and 11. When Satan was thrown down out of heaven, he's called the great accuser of the brethren, and he's going out to make war against the church, but it says in verse 11 that they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the foundation. It's our salvation in Jesus Christ. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. See, they all overcame Satan by the word of their testimony. And that word included scripture. It included the gospel. And that's how they overcame Satan. Even if they were put to death, they still won the victory. They triumphed in faith. Because of the word of their testimony, the word of God that they were sharing, empowered them to overcome Satan. That's why the scriptures in Ephesians 6 is that critical part of the armor of God. It's called the the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's why Paul says that each and every day you need to put on the armor of God and don't forget the sword of the Spirit. That's Scripture. Because with that is how you will fight and defeat Satan. You must have the Word of God. You must be reading it and meditating on it. Hopefully memorizing it. Because that is the the offensive weapon that we use to defeat Satan. It's the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. And to all of our young graduates here this morning, as you celebrate and triumph uh, uh, where God has brought you in this stage of your life, I can also tell you that the path forward is fraught with danger. And though you've accomplished a tremendous goal in your life, in graduating from high school or with a associate's degree, The path forward will be a battle. You have enemies that will seek to derail you and turn you away from Christ. You have the world and you have your own flesh and you have Satan himself that would love to trip you up and derail you and bring you out of the church and cause you to fall into sin and reject the good things that your parents have taught you and you've learned in this church. So the battle is there, the way forward for you, as with all of us in this room, is fraught with danger. And that's why the Apostle John speaks to young men and women. And he says, I've written to you young men, and you can include young women, because you are strong. Now why are they strong? He, he explains And the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. See, your only hope for victory going forward at this point in your life is to immerse yourself regularly and faithfully into the Word of God. Because this is the weapon of choice in battling your flesh, the world, and Satan. It's using the sword of the Spirit And this is why John is so encouraged by the young people that he was writing his letter to. Because they were in the Word of God. Yeah, there's many other things you could commit your time to. Many other avenues of entertainment and media that you could spend hours and hours upon. But if you neglect the the Word of God, you are not wise. Because the way forward will be fraught with pitfalls and snares and hidden traps that Satan is laying before you. And it's only the illumination and the blessing of the Spirit of God using the Word of God that will help you navigate through that maze and live your life for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. That is the key. And I commit it to you. And I encourage you to go forward. And regardless of your past Relationship with Scripture to commit yourself to regular reading and studying of God's Word. I love the Pilgrim's Progress. I know the young men have recently gone through it, so you'll be very familiar with this. But you remember when Christian and hopeful have wandered from the King's Highway. Sometimes that happens, we wander off the King's Highway. And they ended up in the land of giant despair who captures them and throws them into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And while they're in that dungeon, giant despair repeatedly comes down and beats them severely because they have trespassed. They're in his country now and he has captured them and he is abusing them and beating them with regularity. And then He begins to come. He denies them food and water for days. He beats them regularly. And He begins to tell them, look, your case is hopeless. You're never going to escape. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You might as well just end it all and take your own life. There's no way out for you. And because of their pain and affliction and wounds, and because they've been denied food and water, They begin to wrestle with that temptation: Should we just take our lives and end it, or continue to be beaten and beaten again and again until we eventually die? And as they're wrestling with this, and they're they're experiencing the hopelessness and the helplessness of their condition, Christian says, "What a fool am I? Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty." for I have in my bosom a key called promise, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And he took out this key called promise, representing the promises of the Word of God, and he stuck it in the jail door and turned it And the jail door opened up. And they went out to the gate and they stuck it in the the lock of the gate. And the gate door opened up and they were able to escape and find their way back to the King's Highway again. Back on the path to the Celestial City. Well, sadly, many of us, all of us at times, find that we wander off the King's Highway and we forget the promises of the Word of God. And when you forget God's Word, you will be beaten up by giant despair and discouragement and depression. And some even are tempted with taking their own life. And yet they forget that there is a power, there is a hope, there is an encouragement for their hearts found in the Word of God if they will but take it out and use it then they can find that those prison doors will open up, the darkness will fade away, and they'll walk out into the light of the sun again. And this is the encouragement for both young people and for older people, for all of us, that this is how the church grows. This is how you and I will grow individually. It's when the Word of God is growing and multiplying within our hearts and within our church. And that's the message of Acts 12. Regardless of persecution and trials and troubles, when the Word of God grows, the people of God grow. And may God commit our hearts to the Word of God to read it and see the value and importance of Holy Scripture in our lives. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank You for this glimpse of the triumph of the Word of God over the world. And we thank You for the hope that it gives to us, Lord, for there may be some of us that are finding ourselves in Doubting Castle, being regularly afflicted by giant despair. And yet we pray that the Spirit of God would stir our hearts to get back into Scripture, to get back reading more regularly. And find that the key of God's promises can open wide those prison doors and bring us out into the joy and the light of the Son of God. So, Father, help us, motivate us, because the growth of the church and the growth of my personal walk with you is directly tied to the growth of the Word in our lives. So, Father, bless us to that end, we pray.